Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Juliette McClendon, the Director of Medical Affairs at Big Health. She's a clinical psychologist by training, and today she talks to us about how different kinds of stress can affect our health. This is a big conversation, ranging from acute to long-term stresses like discrimination or socioeconomic status, how those things can affect our mental health, and how to intervene to buffer the impacts. Can't wait for you to hear her, so let's get started. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. My name is Joy Rios. We are here with another episode of, of Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am joined by Sharice Maynard, and today's guest is Dr. Juliette McClendon. Dr. McClendon, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to get to know you and your piece of the healthcare ecosystem. I was wondering if you could please take a moment to introduce yourself and kind of tell us the highlights of, you know, the health, your piece of the health IT puzzle. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and talk about myself and what I've been doing. It's always a great opportunity. So I'm Dr. Juliette McClendon. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. So my passion is really in the mental health space. I 
went to Washington University for my PhD. And at Washington University, I really focused my research on racial and ethnic health disparities and the role of stress in shaping those disparities. And as I was doing that work, I came to find that stress was a really important factor, but of course, there are different forms of stress. And so I became really interested in the impact of discrimination-related stress on racial and ethnic health disparities. So that's where a lot of my research has focused. And I really went through sort of the whole process of a clinical psych PhD. So I finished my PhD, defended my dissertation, went on to do a year of clinical work in a community mental health setting, went on for a postdoc at the Boston VA, where I then subsequently started a study looking at an innovative group intervention that actually directly targets the impact of discrimination on the health of veterans of color. And from there, I then found myself at Big Health, which is where I am now. And so I'm currently Director of Medical Affairs at Big Health, which is a digital therapeutics company that focuses on creating digital therapeutics, specifically right now that focus on sleep and anxiety. And we provide safe and effective non-drug therapies for mental health. And I'm happy to talk more about that later, but that's the arena. I sort of went from the in-person mental health care to the tele health, which was you know pushed by the pandemic. And now I'm in this digital therapeutics area. So I've sort of seen all these three different ways that we can deliver mental health care. One thing that you've just hit on that strikes me and it makes me curious is what are the different types of stress? There's not just one kind. So like, how do you categorize types of stress? That's a great question. And you know, it's interesting because I feel like this field is one that is sort of evolving in the way we think about stress. So For a really long time, a lot of the research that looked at the impact of stress on health really focused on individual types of stress. So they might just focus on daily hassles, sort of these stressors sitting in traffic, for example, or, you know, them not having your favorite pastry at the pastry store, like sort of these everyday stressors we might experience. And then there are other studies that have looked more at sort of these major life events and looked at those as stressors. But there's not a lot of studies that have really brought all those different types of stressors together and looked at them as one thing. So I actually just was um, first author on a publication that recently just came out in psychoneuroendocrinology that looked at actually these different forms of stress and looked to see whether there was sort of this overarching stress factor that encompassed all of them. So we looked at discrimination, we looked at stressful life events, we looked at socioeconomic status, and then we looked at, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but a couple of other forms of stress. And what we found was that actually those forms of stress actually really hung together as sort of one thing. So they were all sort of had this stressful impact on individuals, but didn't really differ from each other in terms of the strength of their relationship on health. But the one thing that we did find was that for socioeconomic status, it had both an impact on the stress. It was a part of that stress factor, but it also was a part of it also had a separate impact, which we thought may be sort of that impact of so lower socioeconomic status on like access to resources 
for healthcare, for example. And so, yeah, so there are a lot of different forms of stress. There can be these acute stressors that happen in the moment. There can be these long-term stressors. Oh, what I forgot, we also looked at trauma. So there's a lot of different ways that stress can affect us. And what we know is that stress is really a driver of health challenges. You know, the more stress we experience, the more it impacts our health. And so trying to find a way to intervene, particularly with people of color, by addressing the stressors that are not typically addressed in therapy, like discrimination-related stress, I saw as a really important avenue for further study. How do you address that? How does one do it? That's a good question as well. This is a really sort of new area of research. So there's not a lot of work actually doing like randomized controlled trials, for example, looking at specific interventions. So the study that I completed at the VA was a pilot study. And so it was a small study looking at you know, do people like this intervention? How do they feel when they take it? Like, does it have any impact on some outcomes? But it was a small study. So what I think has really worked within that intervention is focusing not on sort of, okay, you've experienced discrimination in your life. Now you're coming in here with some problems. What's wrong with you and how can you fix it? But rather understanding the way that actually the environment and the society has impacted an individual's mental health and being able to understand understand that aspect of things and not discount that while also looking at, okay, now that you're living in this environment and in this society that is likely not going to change for a while, how do you take care of yourself in the best way possible so that you can start to kind of buffer the impact that that discrimination-related stress might have on your health. And so I think that was a really important aspect of this intervention, as well as the fact that it was a group intervention. So people got a lot of support. They were able to see they weren't alone. They were able to hear from other people's experiences and get advice from them as well. I mean, once you acknowledge what the context is, you're not sort of denying that discrimination happens out there in the world. What are some of the interventions or ways that people can better care for their mental health to navigate? That. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that we did in, in our intervention and that I've also used with individuals is really focusing. I really like to talk about focusing on three areas. So there's the personal area, sort of what we do for ourselves. There's the social area, which is sort of our community and what social support. And then there's the societal level, which focuses more on sort of advocacy and activism. And so what I talk about a lot with people is what can you do for yourself? So that might be like, journaling, meditation, like having a great sleep schedule, whatever it might be, having three meals a day, you know, basic things, or it can be more intense things, engaging in hobbies, anything that brings you joy. And then that second level of social support can be really focused on getting involved in your community in some way, like joining a running club or an art club or um, volunteering in your community or also social support. So reaching out to friends and family in your community for help when you need it or just a listening ear. And then that third level is really, to what extent do you want to be involved in pushing for change in our systems and in our society? And what does that look like? And how do you balance that with also taking care of yourself and being embedded in your community. So I came across something recently and it's not necessarily tied to discrimination, but definitely I think socioeconomic stress. And it had to do with weddings that like a woman who was getting married and inviting people to be a group of people to be part of her bridesmaid, a like crew, wrote out a letter and just kind of acknowledged how stressful it can be for some people because of how expensive it is. Like you don't realize that when somebody invites you to be part of their wedding party, that it can be like thousands of 
of dollars, you know, especially depending on the wedding. And so for somebody like, hey, we're great friends, but I don't know if I'm ready or willing to spend, you know, $3,000, you know, for this event, you know. And so she had kind of identified, like, what does it mean for me? This is what I would like to kind of outline what would, would their responsibilities be and what would her responsibilities be and how they wanted to take, and just sort of like coming to terms with it so that it wasn't this like unspoken stress, really, because it is something that people like take home. And anyway, it can be a really hard thing for people. And she was also really okay with a no, you know, like understanding that it, it's totally fine if you say no. I also just want to, you know, and make sure that you know that you're wanted and you're invited to be part of that. And I thought, I guess, based on what you're saying, that that might be something that somebody could do as part of that third level that you're talking about. It's not like public or community building advocacy, but like in your own world, how could you perhaps re- reduce some stress for some folks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that reminds me of sort of the second level of sort of that community and that social support. And I think one thing you bring up that's really important is acknowledgement. You know, it's really, I think one of the things that was also really spoke to people who engaged in this discrimination intervention is that we were acknowledging that their experiences were real. And that may sound simple, but it's actually not. Oftentimes when people of color or or people from other marginalized groups talk about their experiences with discrimination, it can often be met with sort of questioning or minimizing or even gaslighting. And so to be in a space where these veterans were able to actually talk about what they'd been through and actually have that acknowledged and validated was a big deal for them and was something that they hadn't experienced very often in a healthcare setting. So Dr. McClendon, let me ask you, traditionally, mental health services have been underfunded across the board, um, no matter the area. And in recent years, we've seen, particularly in marginalized populations, very difficult to get medical health services. Now, in the past year, we've seen the CDC and other organizations file a suit to name racism, a public health crisis. Do you think that this will help us get more resources for the area? And then how do you think those resources should be used? I do hope that it means that we'll get more resources in terms of moving towards mental health equity and health equity in general. I do see... So as I said, I've sort of moved out of the research world, but that's very recent. So, you know, I, I saw a lot of sort of calls for commentary from the National Institutes of Health around how do we address health equity? I've seen funding, additional funding calls, special issues in scientific journals. So there's been definitely more talk around it, more awareness. But the question is absolutely like, we need the resources, we need the money, and we need the people to be able to make this happen. And so I do hope that declaring racism as a public health emergency leads to more you know, government funding and other types of funding for programs and initiatives that really seek to improve health equity within communities. But I think that that remains to be seen. And I think that you know, those of us who are really dedicated to improving health equity have to also sort of be on be on top of that and continue to push, you know, people who are the ones who have the money, who hold the purse, to continue to fund initiatives that are really going to have a meaningful impact 
on improving mental health equity and health equity in general. Okay, so let's get into some specifics of your work, digital therapeutics. Mm -hmm. I've written about it in the past couple of years. And what I find, if we're talking about health equity, sometimes patients don't know what digital therapeutics are. So could you, for our audience, could you define what digital therapeutics are and further why patients would buy into the idea of digital therapeutics and also clinicians? Absolutely. So digital therapeutics are often fully automated. I'll talk specifically about our digital therapeutics at Big Health as well. But they're fully auto- They're often fully automated. They're often engaging and they target a specific problem that an individual has. And so people engage with digital therapeutics on like their computer or on a smartphone or some sort of through some sort of digital means. And there are a lot of different sort of models of how this is done. At Big Health, our digital therapeutics are fully automated, engaging, and personalized. And they focus on improving sleep. One of ours focuses on improving sleep and one of ours focuses on improving anxiety and worry. And what's really wonderful about digital therapeutics is that they are often based on evidence-based treatments that have been shown to work in person. So for example, our digital therapeutics take cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for sleep problems and worry and anxiety, and sort of translates it into this digital format where you don't need a therapist. And then from there, people are able to engage whenever they can. So it's sort of on their time, whenever they can do it. And so it's very flexible in terms of when it can be used. In addition, what's a really important aspect of digital therapeutics is that we're sort of substituting a molecule for an algorithm, right? So like many people, the majority of people who have a mental health condition tend to go to their primary care doctor. And pri- and they'll tell their primary care doctor, I've been having trouble sleeping, I've been worrying a lot. And their primary care doctor tends to only have access to medications. And so they'll prescribe a medication and that person will take the medication and they may like it, it may work well for them for a while. It may have some side effects they don't like, so they may stop taking it. You know, there's a lot of different outcomes there. But at the end of the day, if you stop taking the medication, you stop getting the benefits of the medication. And so with a digital CBT, it's similar to medication in that you can take it anywhere with you. You don't have to go to someone's office to get it. I mean, it's even easier than having to go to the pharmacy every 30 days to pick up your prescription, right? And you can engage in evidence-based first-line treatment for the problem you're having. And it provides you with the opportunity to develop skills that can last you a lifetime. So even after you finish using the program, you still have these skills that you can continue using throughout your life. And one really important aspect of digital therapeutics as well is that it's really important that not only are they based on evidence-based interventions, but they should also be tested themselves. So the actual app, for example, should be tested itself. And I'm really proud to say at Big Health, we have 13 gold standard randomized controlled trials on our products, which is about like to put that into perspective, it's about two times the clinical evidence of of industry leaders and three times the clinical evidence of Ambien. So, you know, I think that that's a really, really crucial aspect of digital therapeutics because they're very new. But I think when somebody's thinking about digital therapeutics, they should think about how it is, it's more affordable. It is more flexible. You can take it with you wherever you go. It is sometimes more engaging. Software doesn't discriminate and software is not biased as long as it's developed in, an, in a culturally responsive manner. And so, you know, even though, for example, one study, 53% of patients of color said 
they'd experienced a microaggression in therapy, we can really reduce or eliminate the risks for that happening through software. And it's also consistent. So you get the same sort of, I mean, it's personalized, but it's consistent. So you're getting the same skills. Each person is getting the same skills every week. And that is something that's also a huge strength. So yeah, so I think that patients, you know, a lot of people don't know a lot about digital therapeutics because it's a really new field. It's certainly boomed during the pandemic, but I think we're really in this space of telehealth right now. And I think digital therapeutics is that next generation. And so people should be looking for digital therapeutics, obviously that are engaging, but that have a lot of evidence backing them up because that's how you know that it's actually going to have effective outcomes. And that's what's really important at the end of the day, no matter what you're using, that it's actually going to benefit you and actually going to help you. What is the user's experience of these applications, if of the digital therapeutics? If they're logging in, what is their practical interaction like as uh, either on a daily, weekly, or ongoing basis? Yeah, absolutely. So the two products that we have are a little bit different from one another, but, and I've used both of them, but the user experience is very engaging. So we partnered not only with clinical experts in the areas of insomnia and anxiety, but we also collaborated with people from Radiolab and Pixar to really make it a very like engaging, fun experience. So in Daylight, our anxiety product, the voice is actually one of the producers of Radiolab. And One of my favorite aspects of Daylight is that one of the really effective, this may seem counterintuitive, but a really effective skill for managing anxiety is imaginal exposure, which is where you sit and you imagine sort of the thing you're most scared of actually happening and go through all the feelings associated with that. And it actually helps to calm the anxiety. And so that is represented in our app as like this big, scary monster who's coming through the door. And it looks really cool. Like it looks like a Pixar character. And he's looking through the door and then going back. And it's like, you know, you want to approach the monster that you're trying to avoid. And then it takes you into a skill where you can write down what you're thinking about. And then it helps you to imagine it imagine that. So it's there to support you as you go through it. So it's really interesting. I mean, like, I wouldn't say it's necessarily fun because we're talking about anxiety, but it's as fun as it can be given the circumstances. And it's very personalized. So for example, I had I had put in a one thing they do we do is um sort of challenging unhelpful thoughts. So I put a thought in there and I kept saying I believe it a hundred percent. And it was very adaptive to that. It was like, okay, you believe this 100%. You know, are there potentially, you know, if this is 100% true, you know, sort of what's the worst that can happen? You know, so it's, it's able to adapt to the ways that you're thinking and your thought patterns and to help you change those. So I find the user experience to be really very engaging and very interesting. And I think that users really enjoy the fact that it's not just sort of, you know, reading through something or it's not just a pamphlet. It's really this interactive experience. And it's almost like you have a therapist without actually having a therapist. That's what I was wondering. Cause I was thinking when you're talking about, you know, having consistent engagement on an you know, ongoing basis, I'm like, well, is it something that they're reading? Like, how is it? And that sounds awesome. I, yeah. I mean, I've been talking on one of the hikes that we went on this summer, I was talking with somebody around like, What's the biggest adventure they've been on? What has given them anxiety? How do you get over the fear of doing something that's difficult? And one thing that came up was, you know, just sort of like kind of 
figuring out like what is the worst thing that could happen and how can you sort of dance the dance of doing it anyway, even if, you know, courage, uh, having courage and being brave, even though you are afraid of something. Yeah. And that is, so I guess my follow-up question is the app available to anybody in the general public. Can they just download it from the app store yet? Or does it have to be something that is kind of promoted from their employer or. So we're not direct to consumer yet. The way that, like I said earlier, the way we do it is through employers. So we work with a lot of employers. So if people work for a number of organizations or employers, retail employers, insurance employers, airlines, you know, check with your benefits coordinator and see if they're if they offer our apps or other digital therapeutics that could be helpful. So that's the way it works now. But like I said, we're hoping to really broaden that out by getting some insurance coverage for our products. We're also working with CVS right now so that any CVS, any companies or um, employers who use CVS as their pharmacy, they are able to... So basically, when someone fills a prescription for something like Ambien or a benzodiazepine, they automatically get like an email or a text saying, hey, you qualify for using this particular digital therapeutic. Here's how you can sign up. So we're trying to find more innovative ways to reach people to let them know about our products and to get sort of and to get coverage for our products so that the users aren't having to pay for it. Can we shift gears a little bit and talk more about you as an individual? Yes. I like to know, you know, did you know what you wanted to do when you were 10? Like did you have an idea of is it what you're doing now? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was seven, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And I did do some some stand-up in front of my friends the other day. And they thought it was funny. So I don't know. That might be my second career. <laughs> but when I was young, I wanted to be in healthcare in some way. I wanted to be a doctor from a pretty young age. I always sort of had... like I have a little sister. And I don't know. I always had this sense of wanting to help people and sort of wanting to do something that made a difference in people's lives. So I was always very attracted to that. And then in high school, I had a wonderful mentor who really got me interested in psychology and sort of the origins of psychology. And I just found it very interesting. And so when I went to college, I studied psychology, but I was also pre-med because I was like, I don't know if I want to be a psychologist or psychiatrist or I want to be a medical doctor. And I ended up eventually deciding to pursue a PhD. So I've always really been... For a long time, I've really been interested in being some kind of playing some role in healthcare. And psychology was just the aspect of healthcare that was most fascinating to me, that really grabbed me and got me excited. And I could also see a lot of the gaps in psychology around mental health equity and around um, providing culturally responsive care. And so that's where I sort of saw myself fitting in. That's sort of where that all started. I love it. You know, for a lot of people, it's not necessarily linear. They've jumped around, but it's good to have know that there's people that like, I have a vision. I don't, it's not a hundred percent clear, but I'm walking in a direction and you know, you just step by step, get, get to where you are. Well, I will say that my childhood dream was not necessarily to work for a digital therapeutics company. Not that I was against it, but it didn't even exist when I was growing up. Right. So in graduate school, they didn't really talk to us a lot about industry jobs and what that might look like. I think there are more and more roles for psychologists in industry, but you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. I would say I've gone on a pretty straight track with a few detours. <laughs> That's fair. I also like to ask people, you know, given every, where you stand in your profession, is there anything that you have learned along your journey that you think that you could 
help others? Like, is there something career-wise that you feel like there's a challenge that you've been able to overcome that you might be able to help somebody else hopscotch and like prevent them from every, you know, based on the lesson you learned, like they could just skip over that and move to the next one. <laughs> yeah. So I think one thing I learned very early on in my career in graduate school. So you know, this is particularly for people who are pursuing graduate school and a PhD because a lot of that is really your success in graduate school, a lot of times is centered around who your mentor is because it's really a mentorship model oftentimes. And so making sure to choose a mentor that you have heard great things about that gets along well with their students, that really supports their students is really important. Because when I started graduate school, I did not have a supportive mentor and that slowed me down. And so I was able to switch mentors, but that's not always the case. So my advice would be if you're ever in a situation where you are not being valued and you're not being supported in the way you need to be, it's okay to try and find somewhere else to go, whether that's a different program or a different mentor or a different field, whatever that may be, to obviously put some planning behind it, but not to be afraid to take that risk to try and move into a situation that is more conducive to your growth and professional development. I'd also say another piece of advice is to be always open to opportunity. The way that I got to where I am now is that I've always been open to opportunity. So if an opportunity comes along, it doesn't mean that I say yes to everything, but it means that I always consider it. And I think about whether this is going to help me advance my career, whether this is going to help get more information out there to the masses about mental health, whether this is going to help me make the impact that I want to make. And so then if I'm clear about what I really want to do with my career, once the opportunity presents itself, I can jump on it. Okay. And so then let's switch gears a little bit more and say, how do you unplug? How do you get away from the office? What are your hobbies? Oh, that's a good question. Hobbies. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) When I am done with my workday, I'm done with my workday. I close my computer. I turn off my notifications on my phone and I totally unplug in the evening. And that I think really helps me because then I'm able to just take a break in the next morning, feel refreshed and like I'm ready to go. Same thing on the weekends. I don't work on the weekends. I think I actually am physically unable to work on the weekends or during the week, during the week in the evenings, unless it's like I absolutely have to or I'm going to lose my job. My hobbies. So I have two kids. I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. So they keep me very busy. So lots of going to the park, going swimming, bike riding, all that make-believe, all that kind of stuff. That really helps me unplug. I love to watch my Netflix. I love to travel and spend time with friends. I was just in New York City visiting some friends for my birthday. Those are really the big the big things that I like to do. But I'm actually looking to start some new hobbies. I love to sing. I'm not... Today, my eight-year-old told me that I am not a good singer, but I said, I don't care. I'm going to keep singing. (laughs) Make a joyful noise. That's what I've always said. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love that. Yes. And I just kind of started gardening. I don't know how good I am at it, but it's fun. Out of us garden, um, did gardening this year during the pandemic. What we've been finding, we were actually just in New York ourselves. And what we've been finding is that a lot of women in our field have taken up hobbies like gardening and stuff and really enjoying it. And it's been helping us a lot. So if you had one routine you say you do every day that helps you maintain focus in your job, what would that be? That's a great question. That helps me maintain focus. It's from a mind. Oh my gosh, that is just, 
it's always a struggle, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and it depends on the day, but I, I just try to make sure to go through my morning routine. So I wake up and I have my coffee because I need that first thing in the morning. And then, you know, I take my shower, I put on clothes. Um, I don't stay in my PJs. You know, I do my hair and I actually have an office in my house now, which is really exciting. So I can just go right into my office and like, that's my workspace. And so once I sit down in my office chair and I'm at my computer with my glass of water next to me, there's no going back. I'm going to work. It's sort of like this habit that's been automated. And I just usually start with something light, like checking my email or sort of seeing what I have to do today, spending a little bit of time like working myself into it. And then I just get going. So I would say that that morning routine really does help me focus because I also always listen to music in the morning when I'm in the shower, like a particular album. I won't share because it's kind of embarrassing. But um, just, you know, those things just kind of get me into this mindset of like, okay, this is the next thing that we're going to do. You know, so it's really for me about building that habit and also having that dedicated space for work. Because when I was previously like working in my bed or working on my couch, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was hard to get going a lot because I was, it didn't put me into that like work mindset. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and like sharing some of your dedicated space. It's been really great to get to know you and what you're doing in the world. And if somebody wanted to follow your work or get involved or, you know, connect with you online, what would be the best way for them to do so? The best way to connect with me personally online would be on Twitter. So I'm at Dr. Juliet M, but spelled D-R Juliet M. And then, so that's the best way to connect with me personally. I'm also on LinkedIn. And then if you wanted to learn more about Big Health, you can go to bighealth.com and you can learn more about our company and our products. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing this time together. And uh, we'll talk again soon, hopefully. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit like a girl podcast is a proud member of the health podcast network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission driven which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.